It's 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I'm Alex Redep. And I'm Laura Hertzfeld. And welcome to... This Year's Rent. This Year's Rent! A podcast about rent. Tonight, we're going to talk about how the show was born under what you might consider an inauspicious star, which is that uh, its composer and lyricist, Jonathan Larson, uh, died of an aortic dissection. So January 25th, 1996. Um, and so he had seen it through, you know, through previews and through rehearsal and, and all of that. So he knew that there was something really good about to happen. Right. Um, you know, there was a lot of buzz around what was happening with the show. But, um, you know, it was still downtown, um, you know, had not been the sold out runs before it went to Broadway. And then obviously, you know, we all know what happened after that. But um yeah. But yeah, and this this has always been sort of at the core of of any conversation about the show. Like to me, it's inseparable. You can't you can't really talk about Rent without talking about this aspect of it because to me, and I don't know if this is fair or not, but to me, it informs the entire experience. I know the show wasn't written this way. It wasn't. This was this was nobody's intention of it. But when a show is about trying to make a meaningful work that connects with people before you die younger than you should. And then the composer and lyricist dies before he should. I don't know how to separate those two. And I've never known how from the first time I heard it, like I remember listening to it through that filter. It's such an eerie coincidence that then completely reframes this show. So now my question is, if for other people that's been an inseparable thing, was that the lens people were watching the show through at the time? And did that contribute to the show's success? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a very tiny number of people who were able to see this show while Jonathan was still alive and part of it. So mm -hmm. that number of people is, I mean, I probably only, you know, 100 people or something, whoever, however many people saw it in previews or were part of the show's creation, that was who got to experience this separate from knowing that its creator right. was no longer alive as it, as it continued through its trajectory. So I think it's really impossible to separate those two things. Um, and there is, you know, a tragic poetry to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, For sure. And yeah, then, I, I, oh, go ahead. sorry, go on. No, no, please. Uh, I just, I guess I wanted to kind of kick off this conversation. So there's a book that came out, um, I think it was 1997, like as the show was on Broadway, that took a look at the history of Rand. It also was this beautiful, you know, all these behind the scenes photos and had the entire libretto in it and, you know, all these um, interviews with people around Jonathan. And so there's kind of two quick things that I wanted to read from it because I think it'll really set the tone for our conversation about Jonathan's life. So the first is a quote from Jonathan's friend, her name is Anne Egan. And she just has this one sentence that I think really encapsulates kind of what we're talking about. She says, for us, like his friends, for us, when Rent began, Jonathan ended. For the actors, Rent catapulted their careers and now they're bigger stars than Jonathan ever was in his lifetime. And I think there's this kind of dichotomy between the, what the show is for the people who were involved in it and then what the show became for everybody else. And then the other piece I wanted to read was just a really short paragraph from 
his sister, Julie Larson McCollum. And I think it talks a little bit about who Jonathan was as a person. Because I think whenever somebody, like a figure like that, that becomes really part of the lore and the myth of, of, of Rent, um, as you kind of move move so far away from what it was at the beginning, I think it's really important to remember that this was like a normal person who, who wrote this, mm-hmm. you know, who was just doing his thing. So she says, um, he was not a saint. He could be annoying and frustrated and pigheaded, but I can't think of any unpleasant moments with him as an adult. If Unky was coming, which is what my sons called him, it was pure mm-hmm. magic. Everything felt complete and peaceful. As frustrated as he would get, he was still a joyful person who could find wonderment in sitting and watching a sunset or smelling the roses. He gave a toast at my wedding. There was a long litany of the memories that we shared. And then he quoted Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Does anyone really appreciate life when they're living it? He was one of the few people I know who actually did that. He could take nothing and make it into something fun. Based on basically the libretto of the show and some of that commentary from his sister, he definitely had mortality on the mind. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, look, I think obviously he was surrounded by a community of people who had been touched by the AIDS crisis, who, you know, he saw his friends die. I don't think there is Mm -hmm. any way to, there's no reason or way to gloss that over. The show certainly doesn't, Um, you know, so yeah, of course he was thinking about mortality. I think also in your 20s and 30s, you're sort of starting to come into the world and grapple with real life things in a way that you maybe weren't before. I mean, Jonathan mm-hmm. Larson grew up in like a pretty upper middle class suburban, you know. Yeah, um, he was from, he was from White Plains, from, right? From White Plains. So, yeah. you know, um, he wasn't coming from, you know, the the hard, hard scrabble streets of, of White Plains. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think this probably was the first time that he was like grappling with those things. And I don't know, I can't speak for him, but you know, that was my understanding from reading about him. But I think one of the things too, I mean, when... Kurt Cobain died. We thought that was the biggest thing that was going to happen in our lifetimes, news-wise. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people were sort of, I mean, <laughs> aching for a tragedy. I know, it's hilarious, right? Look so at all I'm, the things I'm, we got to live through. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just, I well, and it's it's easy when you're 17 to think, well, this is the worst thing I'm going to live through. And Yeah, and... I, mean, I remember going to school that day. That was I, dreadful. I'm just, I, I'm just like remembering going to school that day and how how truly deeply sad like my friends and I were and and it was real and and look and it is very sad that Kurt Cobain died there's still it's like all the other things that have happened don't like take away the fact that it was sad that Kurt Cobain died but I think there was this like kids of boomers who had you know protested Vietnam and you know were Mm -hmm. around you know saw Jenna Stoplin die and Jimi Hendrix and all these like I think we were kind of aching for something big to happen for us, which sounds so crazy to say. We were so lucky that like we didn't, you know, have to deal with so many of those things. But, um, but I think when that, when Kurt Cobain died, I think there was this, like, who are, who are these figures that are going to be that for us? And I think when I first read about Jonathan Larson dying, there was a, you know, obviously this was after I learned about Ren. I didn't know anything about him before the show came out. So he was, he was gone before I mm-hmm. knew much about him. But I think there was like a, a real connection and a real feeling like, oh, this person really is gone before their time. And, and could they have done, what else could they have, have done and contributed? And that was really, and that's what was sad about Kurt Cobain. And that's what was sad when, when you read about Jonathan Larson too. 
you brought up an interesting point, which is that Jonathan Larson wasn't was not was not famous by any stretch when he died. He was he was a he was a working composer. He'd done some stuff. He'd done a bunch of he'd written a bunch of stuff. He'd written yep. for Sesame Street. He was ticking a lot of the New York boxes. He really connected himself with the people he needed to be connected to in New York. He was out there networking. He met Sondheim when he was, I think, in, in college and went back to Sondheim for advice about whether he should be a composer or whether he should, you know, go the acting route. So, you know, mm -hmm. he was making his his way, you know, and, and finding people to produce his work. Yeah. But it's interesting because had he lived even to the point where the show opened on Broadway, he would he would have been on press tours. He would have been doing junkets. He would have become, you know, we would have seen his face at the Tonys and and heard his acceptance speech. And because this was his first big break and because of when he died, we never got that. So there's always been this air of mystery about him. And to me, that air of mystery around him and the fact that the show hadn't even gone into previews for its Broadway run means that that mystery has always been a place to sort of park a lot of my misgivings about the content because since he died before it went into previews, it must have, it probably would have felt unconscionable to rewrite it or punch it up once once they mm. were once they were trying it out so the show was basically the show was basically locked downtown and then it moved uptown and no show i don't care what it is survives that process completely intact as it was but rent did because i i, I look i cannot imagine they must have had a conversation about it and probably everybody uh, or at least enough people on the creative team decided it was a bad idea. But look, there are, and this is going to be the first of many times I say this is maybe the nicest way I put it. There are many imperfections about the score and about and about the lyrics, which I'm going to delve into in in great detail in upcoming episodes, which are the sort of things that when your composer is still when your composer when your lyricist is still with you during during your during previews you can address those things but so because the show was was basically frozen in amber at the moment of his death it, it becomes this double-edged sword because it does cast a pall over the show that makes it inseparable from the tragedy like we were saying but it also kind of it always makes me wonder what what could the show have evolved into if it if it had if it had been subject to the normal process of these things. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. I think that we all would like to see that, right? I think, and I actually am, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to see what Lin-Manuel Miranda does with Tick, Tick, Boom. Oh, that's right. Because, you know, because I think we are far enough away from Jonathan's death, we're far enough away from the 90s that I think there is an opportunity to sort of embrace its imperfections, embrace his mm -hmm. work's imperfections and take it to the next level. So I really hope that that he does that. I don't know what what's I going think, on with that show, but or with the, the movie, but I think I there's think also, a real opportunity. And with Tick Tick Boom, it's a different sort of case study because it's not it's not I I don't think Tick Tick Boom is as sacrosanct. I think if Oh no, I think people don't I, I mean you, I yeah. I I have I mean, actually I've listened to half of it once. And I've had about 30 years to listen to more of it, um, but or, or however long it's been. But uh, so I feel like if there is, shall we say, if there's room for improvement there, uh, then I think that one, it's going to bother 
way fewer people if if tinkering happens with it. I don't think you can do it to rent, you know, like I just, I just don't think you can because I mean, as much as somebody might be able to do something brilliant with it, um, I just don't, it's too much in in the canon, like it just doesn't work, but I think, but that's why I think the tick, tick, boom thing is interesting because there's an opportunity to do something different there and still honor the work. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I think with rent, the, the. I don't think, yes, it's part of the canon. It is completely like adored the way it is. Uh, and I don't, even even as someone who, who, has, who has some creative grievances with elements of it, I don't think you should fuck with it because, because it works fine, honestly. I mean, and I think the proof is in the pudding for that. It's not one of these things like, it's not one of these shows like Chess or Candide that they're going to keep rewriting every 15 years to see if they can get it right this time i don't think there's i don't think there's the input i i don't i don't know what it would take to motivate someone to say hey i'm gonna rewrite rent i don't know about rewrite but i think if it Hunch really it is a sh- yeah but like i do think that if it's a show that does stand the test of time then it it's a living document like all these other shows. So mm-hmm. you look at the revivals of South Pacific and The King and I and all those Roger and Hammerstein ones that have their problematic bits, but people are able to reimagine them for an audience for today. And a kid who goes to see the Lincoln Center version of, you know, one of these shows and they, they maybe haven't seen the old movie or maybe they have, but the, mm-hmm. the show that they're introduced to on stage becomes their version of the show that they love and adore. And I think if we can't, I mean, I don't think that Rent could be like rewritten, but any good director could think about how does something get reimagined for a current audience. And I actually think it would let Jonathan down, speaking totally projecting here, but you know, to me, I feel like anybody who makes something, they make it as a, as something that, is alive and that's why we love theater is because it's alive and so you have to think about what might this like look like if somebody you know thought about it a little bit differently for the stage today oh and i'd be fully in favor of that like like reviving and reinterpreting it feeling no need to be faithful to its its totems like i i would be fine watching a production where Mark's not in like the striped sweater or something. Cause I feel like that's, I feel like those are the first things everyone gravitates toward. Cause that's kind of the easiest stuff right. to recreate. I would be totally open to, to as much experimentation with how you stage it as possible. I do want to get back. I, 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 I love this kind of meandering. It's why we're doing this, but I do kind of want to get back to Jonathan Larson. You were saying something interesting before about how you had an interesting perspective that his death actually became sort of a footnote on it and that the actual circumstances of his death got lost in the lost in the 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 hype of it all. His death became like part of the the myth and the lore of the show. Oh, did you know the creator died the night before the show opened? And even as you're talking about it at the beginning of this, like getting some of the facts like a little mixed up. Like that's not, that happened. This was like a whispering down the lane kind of, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it was in the news, people knew what happened, but but as the show grew and grew, you know, it was like he died the night of the Broadway opening or he, and the, so that was like one, you know, it was like the original, it becomes, not original, it but be- there was, it was fake news. Like it became this it whole thing gossip. that, 
it became gossip. And the bigger thing that I always remember too, is like the people who knew about him and who knew something about the show knew that he died of natural causes. And, you know, that was tragic and happened very suddenly Mm -hmm. and, and all of that. But if all you knew about the show was, Oh, it's that musical that's about AIDS and the creator died the night before it opened. People just assumed that Jonathan Larson died of AIDS, which added this other, like totally incorrect, but also strange, you know, mythological people trying to make it this, this full circle, Mm -hmm. you know, thing. And that's absolutely not what happened. But, um, but the story stories kind of over overtake things sometimes. And something interesting about that, and this, uh, people making that assumption unwittingly speaks to a very 1990s kind of assumption, which is you would only dedicate so much of your life to writing a show about people with AIDS if you yourself were suffering from it. Like the only reason mm-hmm. you could, the only possible way you could muster empathy for it, for for people living with AIDS is if you were one of them. To me, that tracks with how I remember how much a separate class of people, people with AIDS were treated as in the 80s and 90s. Even more than that. I mean, he's writing gay characters and lesbian Mm -hmm. characters, you know, from, and he's a straight man writing these characters. And that's, you know, but this was his community. And I think Mm -hmm. people assumed that he was gay. They assumed he had AIDS. They assumed a lot of things because of this story that he told. I was reading about it as we were in the in, as we were getting ready for this episode. I do do some research. I just don't remember it very well. Um, that he he died of an aortic dissection, uh, which is a thing I am terrified of. But I remember when John Ritter died of it. Um, I was like, right. that's, a, yeah. that's I was like, that's a that's a thing that happens. Like it's it, it's this terrifying thing, and it was related to in Larson's case. They think. He um, was undiagnosed, but may have had Marfan syndrome, which which can lead to heart issues. It's it's terrifying to me, by the way. I'm, I I turned forty five this year, and I'm like, he was thirty five when he went. When I was when I was a late teenager, when this show was new, uh, thirty five obviously still felt not super far away, but plenty far away. Um, right. And now it's like that is actually that is pretty far in the rear view now. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing about the mythologizing and the sort of neatening of his death, I, I find that misunderstanding stuff like that comes from a place of ego defense in the face of fear. Uh, and it's something we've seen so much of in this last year during this pandemic, where people are behaving so irresponsibly and so flagrantly just like not even anti-scientifically, although that's bad enough, but just like anti-common sense about it. because it's easier to downplay this thing than to face the awfulness of it. It's easier to neaten the life and death of Jonathan Larson into, he wrote about AIDS because he had AIDS and he died of AIDS before he could see his show about AIDS become, you know, uh, uh, reach fruition. And that is, that would be very tidy. That would be very easy to comprehend. It, It ignores the randomness of his death, the suddenness of his death, and just the and the unfairness of it. Like my my misgivings about the material don't 
mean shit when held against the fact that this 35 year old guy who was who was grinding it out as a composer where he could all over New York and like you said seeking out contacts and making moves and doing all the things that you're supposed to do like when you're young and hungry and he made it right to the threshold of it and dropped dead and that is beyond awful to, that is sadder than anything that happens in a two and a half hour show about people bonding while they die. It's it's true. I am surprised there is not a show about Jonathan's life yet, honestly. Like well, I've I mean, always been surprised, but yeah. I, I was surprised about this because until we started talking about doing this show, my knowledge of Jonathan Larson was there was rent. And then there was Tick, Tick, Boom, which was sort of this, um, which was sort of a footnote and that had gotten, that saw the light of day after Rent became a huge success, even though it had been written before. Mm -hmm. But in doing research about him, he was really prolific and he wrote, he wrote a bunch of yeah. stuff, which, which by the way is like, is true of every composer. Like just because this is the stuff that saw the light of day, yeah. those aren't the only songs well, that it's, unlike, it's, unlike Roger, who is apparently going to spend a year as a professional <laughs> songwriter writing one song, I'm going to save that one for next week. Jonathan Larson was doing what a composer does, which is yeah. trying everything he could and trying to get as much stuff seen and heard as possible. I've been thinking a lot this year since he died about Adam Schlesinger. Mm -hmm. um, and I just like garbled his name, God. Adam Schlesinger. Um, and reading about Jonathan, I was kind of reminded about about him again because I think it's a very similar, like, not not the same, but you know, no, but wrote so much that you don't even realize is him. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so many songs that I was like, oh wait, that sounds, oh yeah, he wrote that mm -hmm. too, you know, and that just kept happening to me this year as I was like reminded of things, you know, and then. I was like, I'm a huge Crazy Ex-Girlfriend fan and like, hmm. we should get Rachel Bloom on the show because I'm sure she has like amazing things to say. But um, <laughs> she's great. But uh, do, you feel like but she's, I, she, do you feel like she'd be into like talking about musicals for a while? Or, uh, I, mean, I think that might think? kind of be her thing. Yeah, yeah well, just, you know. just a little, you know, a little, 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 little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Um, yes, best birthday present ever. Mm -hmm. Side note, total meandering story. But um, for my birthday... For my birthday two years ago, a good friend of mine and my husband and my mom all surprised me by taking me to a thing where Rachel Bloom was speaking and then like oh, got nice. to meet her after. It was really fun. They like That's kidnapped awesome. me, put me in the car. <laughs> it was really fun. Anyway, um, she's super great. We're like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's get besties on. now. She's coming on, but no. You've, um, you've, co you've convinced me. Let's do this. Uh, but anyway, that's a side note only to say that I was thinking a lot about Adam Schlesinger as I was reading about Jonathan this week because that prolificness and kind of like the Sesame Street stuff that Jonathan did and just the, you know, he was kind of everywhere but not seen, you know, for mm -hmm. a short amount of time um, and then was able to kind of create this this opus and um I don't know. There's not a lot of people who can do that. This is interesting. It, it, it's making me wonder why out, outside certain circles, why there hasn't been more of an effort given, given the, the success of rent, why there wasn't 
more of an effort to get his demos and unfinished works and all of that to the light of day. And part of me thinks that it ties back to what you were saying before, that because because he was never famous, because he was never a known personality, I think there wasn't the same kind of hunger for it. It's like when Hamilton broke huge because Lin-Manuel was like literally the face of the thing in every way that you could be. Uh, no disrespect to all his collaborators, but because he was the face of this thing and because he was he was the one on SNL and he was the one, you know, becoming, he was the one most becoming the celebrity off of it. Suddenly there was this desire for like, we got to, you know, there there was this hunger for what else has this guy done? Like, like what what's out there already? And suddenly I feel like, like old demos or things he did for Electric Company were suddenly were suddenly surfacing again mm -hmm. and there was this desire to sort of uh connect the dots between oh it, you know the he started here and now he's here um i wonder if jonathan larson not being a known personality just just having his work be known i wonder if that contributed to the sort of well we've got the show and and that's kind of enough it's possible. I mean, I think there's also things that we have no way of knowing how protective the family is of sure. his work or anything like that. I do think, you know, especially like having some, you know, the musical sort of, um, I don't know, I guess with Hamilton and with Lin-Manuel Miranda's success, just thinking about people who, like you don't get Lin-Manuel Miranda without Jonathan Larson. And oh, I think that generation, yeah. like, no. But there's a, we're only now starting to see the work from the generation of people who were so hugely influenced by Ren. Mm -hmm. Like it's taken until us being in our 30s and 40s, like to, you know, have people who this show meant a lot to reach that stature. And so I think people like Lin-Manuel Miranda are championing Jonathan Larson's work again. And you kind mm -hmm. of need somebody to champion it to like bring it back to that place. I think you're right because there, there, there certainly was, uh, there were a couple of waves or like mini waves of of shows that kind of that in, in the years immediately following Rent that kind of drafted off of uh, this is this is a little bit offbeat for Broadway or this is confronting mortality or this is you know about a group of young people you know we we right there were shows that would not have had as easy a time seeing the light of day, let alone maybe wouldn't have been written had it not been for Rent. But I think you're right that for that real influence, it has taken, it's taken a, a full generation. Yeah, taken, and I mean, it, I mean, exactly. Like, you know what I mean? I mean, not mm -hmm. not just like building off the buzz that young people right. go to the theater right, right. and making something that's hip, but really um, that next level of this is in my DNA and I write differently because of because this show. Of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're yeah. going to, you know, in another five, ten years, we're going to see that same thing happen with the kids who were in middle school and high school when Hamilton dropped. And yes. where it's not, because, well, look, every every musical entity of the last five or six years has done its best to dip its toe in in that well and and to try and imitate the style or capture some element of Hamilton to varying degrees of success most of them not great because you got to have the special sauce but there is going to be this generation of kids who were raised where that's that's what a Broadway show is well and, and not to put it 
too put to put too fine a point on it, but like there will be one. There was one Jonathan. Mm-hmm. There is one Lynn Manuel Miranda. There will yeah. be one person yeah. who like is the next bit. And I don't mean that from a like uh, there aren't many talented people who don't make it. I just mean there are sort of once in a generation voices that yeah, make something that hits that note. Yeah, there's 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 always multiple talented people working in a field at any given time. But the the kind of the breaking big like the the rock star that we're talking about, you're right. That's that's once in a generation. And in the case of Jonathan Larson, it's it's sad that circumstance had it that it was one and done. Like and you know, not not to be uncharitable, who knows if he had another show in him. He probably did, but we'll never know. And it's right. you know, it's this so he became this voice for a very fleeting moment, a moment that he unfortunately didn't get to enjoy. He was very fortunate to have collaborated to stand to take something I said before and stand it on its head. He had collaborators who protected his work even after he was gone. Because I look, mm-hmm. I'm sure with as many producers as it takes to get a show up, a show up and running on Broadway, someone in the the process of moving the show to Broadway and getting it into preview, someone must have been arguing for rewrites. Whether it was I don't know somebody saying like, let's get Jason Robert Brown in to write a couple of songs or whatever, you know. Just, I I have no inside information that that ever happened. Just that that's what happens on shows. So right. someone must have tried that, but. I don't know who the collaborators were who put a stop to it and and preserved the show, but that must have felt to them as doing right by Jonathan Larson's work. And whether you agree with the whether you agree with the outcome of the show or not, whether I agree with the outcome of the show or not, you got to respect that that's an honorable well, thing to have done. And I think the other thing that you have going on when when Jonathan died and where the show was at that moment in time is you have this cast that is incredibly tight-knit and stayed with the show throughout I mean the core mm-hmm. original Broadway cast um were well they're so still, close they're, they're, they're still, still tied buddies to it now yeah well not, yeah. not oh, only not right. only are they friends but it's like even those who have gone on to have other successes in other areas of showbiz, they are still for, it's still what for they get me, for me anyway. For. And for, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Like that is, that's where, you know, th- that was, that was the root of it for them. And that's still, they're yeah. still tied to it and it to them. Yeah. And I think some of them have broken. I, I think Adina, that is not the first thing people recognize her for anymore, no. uh, or at least our generation, maybe. But I think she has eclipsed that, you know, with many, with Wicked, with Frozen, mm. with whatever. But I do, you know, so maybe she's the exception. I don't know, but they've all done really big things. I think you can say mm. that about about a lot of them. But my point will access because I want to go back mm. to my original point, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is, <laughs> which is, I think because of the closeness of that cast and because they went through this tragedy together, um, I think changing that show would have had repercussions, not just, you know, they, they weren't like actors for hire who were gonna, who were, who could divorce themselves 
from what happened. I mean, they created that show really as a, as a group of people together and, mm-hmm. and then being able kind of going through a death of somebody that close, you know, that quickly, that young, um, I think is really challenging. And I'm hoping we get a couple OBC folks on here to kind of talk about that. Cause, um, you know, I think amazing. that, uh, but I think when you think about how do they protect the work, I think there were multiple things at play that needed to happen to protect it. And I think changing the show for the people who were going to perform it um, was also something that would have been very challenging. I think in the grand scheme of things too, it's, it, it would have been insignificant and it would have been potentially detrimental. Cause I will, look, I will agree that the misgivings I have about the material, which I know I keep alluding to, and I promise you we're going to get to next week. I'll, you know, I'll have plenty to say once we start like unpacking the text. Uh, but the show is one of those where it's bigger than the sum of its parts. And some of that is, some of that is the emotional experience of seeing it, that it is a very operatic experience that's sort of best experienced emotionally. Uh, some of that is the, 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 um, some of that is, the aura of Jonathan Larson's death surrounding it. it it's, it's bigger than itself. It's, it's certainly bigger than the sum of its parts. So I think to devil's advocate my own earlier argument, uh, there would not have, it would not have made much sense at all to give it the sort of intensive uh, punch-up process or rewrite process that a show gets in when it's in previews because there's no because because the show worked because it was striking a chord with people already and it only went on to strike an even more resonant chord as time went on i'm excited for us to dramaturg this through our podcast though i i, I want to hear your your change your suggested changes oh i don't even know that i have changes but i will certainly point out things that bother me well that's acceptable I'm not- I'm I'm not I'm not here to solve problems, just indicate them. Come on. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, <laughs> should we wrap or do we have more that we want to talk about? I feel like we've kind of put a bow on this. Yeah, uh, I think or at least in the process of it. This is yeah, this was that was that was some good meandering, Laura. I like it. Yeah, we, we, I, I like it. Definitely threaded our theme and got a little discursive about it. And what, if not that, are we here to do? I mean, really. Well, I I know we said last time we were going to work on a sign-off. Uh, I sure didn't do that. Uh, I don't know if you did. I didn't. Um, wait, I didn't. But let's let's give us two seconds. See if we can come up with one. I don't know. Uh, we can just moo. Uh, <laughs> gotta do moo. the moo. Moo. Until next time, moo. Moo. I love it. <laughs> This year's Rent, a podcast about rent, is hosted and produced by Laura Hertzfeld and Alex Gredet, and is a Happier Company production. Executive producers Joe Tower and Brian Weiss. This year's Rent is proud to benefit Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider a donation at donate.broadwaycares.org.